Welcome to the Vitality Radio Podcast, your source for the truth about health, wellness, and real alternatives to drugs, surgeries, and the status quo of healthcare. Here, you'll find information that empowers you to take control of your health. But it's not just about health and wellness, it's about the politics of healthcare and protecting your health freedom. Now, here's your host, Jared St. Clair. Hello and welcome to Vitality Radio. My name is Jared St. Clair, and it's good to be with you again on another episode of this podcast. I am in a unique position for this show today as that I, as because, if I can spit it out, I don't typically talk directly to politicians. I often talk about politicians uh, and uh, the things that I'm annoyed with uh, that are going on with our uh, with our health freedoms. Uh, as you know, I talk a lot about the politics of health. Uh, I have a unique opportunity today, though. A good friend of mine who you've heard on Vitality Radio, Robert Scott Bell, introduced me to a good friend of his. Jonathan Emord is going to uh, join me here in just a second on Vitality Radio. He is running for Senate in Virginia. And of course, uh, for the podcast audience out there, I'm sure we have some Virginians listening. Uh, and for the radio audience, lots of Utahns. But uh, regardless of where he's running, his message is one that I believe you need to hear. And that's why I've got him on Vitality Radio today. Jonathan, welcome to Vitality Radio. Great to be with you. Well, I'm really happy to have you. We had a few minutes to talk before uh, the uh, show began, and uh, you have a phenomenal history of fighting against uh, government censorship, specifically when it comes to health and health claims uh, that I want to dig into. But if you'll just give the audience a couple of minutes about uh, you know where you come from, who you are. So uh, I was born in Brockton, Massachusetts. My father was a professional boxer, Tommy Rarden. He fought under a pseudonym and uh, was actually ended up in the Air Force ultimately and was the boxing coach for the Air Force. Uh, that's an aside there. Uh, I, I came to, into Washington in the Reagan administration after law school. I was scheduled to enter a PhD program in constitutional history after law school and the Reagan people called me. They said, we'd like you to work as an attorney at the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. And I said, I don't think the FCC should exist, so why should I go to work for it? And they laughed and said, that's why we want you to come to Washington. So I, uh, I started my career as an attorney in the FCC. And as you know, the FCC during the Reagan years deregulated a lot of radio and television. And they got rid of this horrible thing that allowed the government to exercise censorship over radio and TV stations called the Fairness Doctrine. And that led to Rush Limbaugh and to Tucker Carlson and all the great uh, conservative talk show hosts in the country having an opportunity to be on the air. Otherwise, if the Fairness Doctrine were in place, they wouldn't be on the air. But anyway, uh, those were great First Amendment victories. So after that, um, I went to work at, as a litigator uh, in private practice, a federal litigator, and I sued regularly the government. And in the course of that career, um, I uh, defeated many agencies in their own administrative proceedings, which was considered highly unusual. They're largely kangaroo courts, uh, and then went on to um, beat the FDA over and over again. Uh, never had the FDA been defeated on First Amendment grounds in its history. We won a landmark case called Pearson versus Shalala, and then seven additional constitutional decisions against the agency in case after case after case. 
So that led to uh, an enormous amount of health information that had been censored entering the market and helped uh, promote and inspire a health revolution in this country, including uh, people for the first time coming to be aware of the fundamental effects of nutrients on protecting them from the risk of disease, uh, not least of which is uh, the folic acid neural tube defect claim that we won, uh, which was a very significant benefit for women and for uh, children who had otherwise been born with birth defects or uh, even uh, would have been aborted because of birth defects. Um, that decision uh, allowed the claim that 800 micrograms of folic acid in a dietary supplement would be more effective in reducing the risk of neural tube defect births than folate in foods in common form. Um, the, the reality was that when you have food folate, it's destroyed in food preparation, chopping, cooking, uh, and you don't get a reliable 800 micrograms a day if you're a woman of childbearing age. If you get the 800 micrograms as a woman of childbearing age before you become pregnant, there's approximately an 80% risk reduction of neural tube defects. That's your brain outside your, your, your skull, your spinal column outside of your back. These things are horrific birth defects that require uh, oftentimes lifelong medical intervention mm -hmm. and uh, oftentimes result in the death of the baby uh, and led to numerous abortions. There were estimated 2,500 preventable neural tube defect births for an entire decade, plus countless NTD abortions. That decade was the decade of FDA censorship. When we won the case and it knocked down the FDA censorship rule about a year later, CDC uh, had found a substantial reduction in the number of, of uh, uh, neural tube defect births in America, and now it's in the hundreds uh, annually, and there are virtually no NTD-related abortions. So it, it's, it has literally saved uh, tens of thousands of, of lives and caused you know, a countless number of children to be born normally without these defects. So that that's one of the kinds of victories we we've enjoyed over the years. Can I ask you a question about that? Because this is really interesting to me. I, I, I know you don't know much about my history, but I grew up in a health food store. I literally started working there when I was seven years old. I own the store now. So, you know, what I do is sell vitamins and minerals and herbs and these types of things. And I'm frankly alarmed that I know so little about your track record and what you've done, I guess, seemingly behind the scenes. So what year did you win that victory against FDA when it comes to the neural tube defect? So that was 1999. And from okay. 1999, so that was a landmark decision called Pearson versus Shalala. Dirk Pearson and Sandy Shaw were the principal plaintiffs. Uh, great. Uh, they were a Dirk. book called Life Extension of Practice. I know those guys. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So uh, they were the principal plaintiffs and we won that decision. Then, then I went on to win an additional... Uh, seven cases, uh, all of them dealing with nutrient disease relationships that were being censored. Among those were folic, the folic acid one, but also the omega-3 uh, claim. The omega-3 fatty acids reduced the risk of coronary heart disease. In that one, uh, we won that one against FDA and that got that information out. But during the pendency of the litigation, um, the uh, we sent all of our information on the science supporting the reduction in the risk of heart disease to the Office of Management and Budget. 
asking them to assess independently uh, whether our position was correct. We were so confident in our science. And they came back and issued a thing called a prompt letter in which they asked the FDA commissioner to hurry up and complete his assessments uh, because if the information were allowed, OMB said, there would be a reduction in approximately 100,000 deaths annually from sudden death heart attack if that omega-3 claim got out. Now, fortunately, we won that and the claim is out. Uh, in, in addition, numerous other claims we've won over the years. The claim that um, B6, B12, and folic acid in combination reduces the risk of vascular disease. That claim we got through. The claim that uh, chromium picolinate reduces the risk of uh, insulin resistance. We got that claim through. We got through uh, claims about selenium and cancer risk reduction and antioxidant vitamins and cancer risk reduction. Um, there are many claims, uh, I think some 32 claims that were censored that we won through this litigation and the results have been uh, enormously helpful. I mean, we can't measure in particular like we can with uh, the CDC measuring um, birth defects, but we know that the health of many people has undoubtedly been in improved enormously by allowing that information into the marketplace. Well, and for people that aren't aware, there's, uh, there is a significant challenge. I talk about it on Vitality Radio uh, fairly regularly, I guess, uh, with uh, people who are or, or companies who are manufacturing supplements and uh, essentially the ability to actually tell the truth about what their supplements can potentially do, right? Right. And because they're not drugs, they're considered food supplements. And because they're not drugs, they're not permitted drug claims. And this all has to do with the DSHEA uh, legislation that went through back in 93, I think. Um, and we have a real problem there because as, as a consumer, you are left to dig around on the internet and hopefully find some viable information about the supplements that you're buying, listening to shows like this, uh, you know, reading blogs and substacks and wherever you get your information about health. But the manufacturer themselves can't actually make much in the way of claims other than what are called structure function claims. And structure function claims don't say selenium can help prevent cancer right. or that folic acid can help prevent birth defects, right? And so you've had to fight these on a claim-by-claim -claim basis over the years to get just some of the censorship removed. Right. This is a real uh, massive regime of prior restraint. Prior restraint the Founding Fathers understood to be unconstitutional under the First Amendment. And so the victories we've had on a case-by-case -case basis are remarkable. Uh, it's very rare indeed that a lawyer ever wins in his whole career a single case against the government. They have like a 98 to 99% success rate. So defeating them over and over again is unprecedented, but it doesn't solve the problem ultimately. And that's why I'm running for the United States Senate, because what we really need to do is to remove the FDA's jurisdiction over evaluating health claims. Uh, if you're under a First Amendment regime, you should be able to do as the First Amendment requires, which is that the onus is against the government to prove that what you say is false, not on you to prove what you say is true as a to the government's satisfaction as a condition for you to speak. Imagine if you applied the same prior restraint to other areas. You know, what if you wanted to talk about 
your car dealership providing uh, uh, a, a new electric car that you say is superior to other cars, and you had to first go to the government before you open your mouth at all and prove to them to a conclusive degree that what you are about to say is true. If you applied this all across the board, you would have virtually no speech. Now they do this in the supplement area and in the health area, and what does it do? It robs us of essential information in the market. So I'm gonna introduce legislation that will strip the FDA of the power to regulate health claims and put us in the same category as all other information in the market, fully protected by the First Amendment. That doesn't mean we're going to tolerate fraud. It just means that the government is going to have to prove that what you say is false before it puts this blanket censorship on everybody who wants to speak, the vast majority of whom all they want to do is tell you the science that is out there about their nutrients, right, and their products. And if we allow that profusion of information in the market, it doesn't mean that every single bit of it is provable conclusively. Very few bits of information are ever provable conclusively. What it means is that you get access to information that you as a consumer can take into account when you're deciding, am I going to buy this supplement or that one? Do I want this amount of the supplement or that amount? Do I have mm -hmm. this condition or whatever? You can make your own judgments. Now, having that ability to proceed in that way will have a remarkable effect because it will vastly increase our health. Why? Because all this information, over 40 years of scientific information in the, in the peer-reviewed literature denied consumers, that information will come into the market and people will suddenly be able to realize, wow, you know what? There are all sorts of things I can do with my diet, with supplements and things that can fundamentally change my health and enable me to live longer and have a better immune system and to be able to ward off a lot of these age-related diseases to much later in life. And we know this to be true with the evidence that already exists. It's just locked by the government out because they're protecting a drug monopoly of therapeutic information. They are totally, FDA is totally a captive of the drug industry. And on that score, I have some major changes that I want to introduce in legislation. I want to see the FDA's drug approval process, which is corrupt to its core, stripped from the agency and privatized. I want a statutory system with the kinds of proof required to establish safety and efficacy delineated and a licensing system that authorizes private universities, private clinical laboratories to engage in drug testing in a blinded system so the drug companies don't know who's testing the drug they want to get approved. And then they'll determine safety and efficacy free of the influence of the outside and we'll get better judgments than we get from the FDA. The FDA relies on the drug companies themselves to do their own testing on their own proposed drug, conflict of interest. Yeah. And that's the ordinary way. FDA never tests itself any drug it approves. Never. It always relies on the drug company sponsor. It's been rigged from the start. It is corrupt as the Dickens. We have to end that. And that's what the legislation I'll introduce will do. Well, you're certainly speaking my language. That's amazing. So, and, that, and it's important to understand that not only does the FDA not test 
uh, anything that they approve. And not only do the drug companies do their own testing, which, again, all kinds of conflicts there, but the FDA gets 60 plus percent of their budget from the pharmaceutical companies who they are supposed to regulate. So if you want to talk about conflict of interest, it's unbelievable, right? Um, and, and the and fees yet, charge are massive. And what yeah. that means is that it automatically creates a barrier to market entry. So here you are, you, you are a, a scientist, you have discovered an agent that actually affects a reduction in disease. You would like to be able to say that. You would like to be able to publish those papers. You'd like to be able to market it. But you can't because you've got to spend literally over a million dollars in fees, plus you have to spend upwards of a billion dollars in the kinds of testing the FDA will require before they will consider it for approval. And if you're not one of their favored drug regulatees, the probability of you getting approved is really small. So what does that mean? It's, it's absolutely a, a virtually complete total market barrier. And I've represented parties who've had medical devices and, and have discovered the uh, therapeutic effects of certain agents who've wanted those things to be approved, but they don't have the money to go through this process. And it's, so it, it, is, it is preventing innovation in the health marketplace. It's keeping from people drugs they need in order to survive. And, you know, I wrote this thing years ago called the Access to Medical Treatment Act for Ron Paul. He introduced that into Congress. And that would allow people to get access to unapproved drugs if they were terminally ill. Because, uh, you know, by definition, if you're terminally ill, the approved drugs don't cure your disease. So you want to give them access to unapproved drugs in any effort to save their lives, as long as they were fully informed of the known risks and benefits. Mm -hmm. So that, that bill, when Ron Paul left Congress, Rand Paul introduced a version of that bill called the Right to Try Bill. And yeah. he convinced Donald Trump to go along with it. And Trump, to his great credit, did not invite the drug industry in to weigh in and kill it. He kept it a secret. And then he went to Congress in a State of the Union address and said, this bill must pass. So I take great pride. 20 years before, uh, Ron Paul had introduced that bill. Rand Paul got it through and it became was signed into law by President Trump. That's the kind of thing we need to do. But there's a lot more work to do to end FDA censorship and barriers to market entry. And there's a lot. Uh, the censorship by this agency is, is incredible. Same thing by CDC. Same thing by big tech working with the White House, as the Twitter files showed us. The, the degree of censorship, we've never had more censorship in, the, in the, our country's history than we just experienced and are experiencing. With people being deplatformed and having that the being ostracized and kicked out of professional forums, not being able to publish. Uh, we have harmed ourselves immeasurably because of that. Absolutely. And it has impacted our health, um, not just our freedom. And so that's that's really a great segue into the next uh, the next portion of what I want to talk to you about, because in my view, much of the censorship that you just discussed, the censorship of claims for things like omega-3 and folic acid and that kind of stuff, were really, um, uh, they were, there were censorships that were taking place that the public didn't even know about for the most part, right? Right. And so we have no idea that we're not getting the information because nobody's talking about the information we're not getting. But then something 
dramatically shifted in 2020 and 2021 and 2022 and so on, where all of a sudden those who are paying attention anyway are seeing the censorship front and center. They're getting it on their own Facebook feeds or Instagram feeds, or they're being pulled off of Twitter, like you said, deplatformed, and they're getting thrown into Facebook jail because they posted a meme that questioned something that Tony Fauci said. So now we see the censorship front and center, but what in the world can we do about it? And what do you plan to do about it if you're elected? All right. This censorship is clearly, in my judgment, a violation of the First Amendment because the big tech, for example, they are being and, and the major media, too, uh, were frequently being proxies of government censorship. They, and they, they aided the White House in preventing information critical of the administration's position on the vaccines and even on, you know, Hunter Biden and the whole Biden corruption scandal. They, they succeeded in censoring in mass across the United States critical views that were indispensable to getting to the truth. We did not have the truth about Hunter Biden before the election. That was masked. They said that it was Russian disinformation. That was part of a political campaign engineered by the White House, uh, engineered by the administration, uh, the friends of this administration, in order to prevent the public from realizing the full extent of Biden family corruption. We saw the censorship of all information about ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. Early treatments were censored right away. A person who's endorsed me, Dr. Robert Malone, uh, was, was stripped right off the every platform because he dared criticize the use of the thing he invented, the mRNA platform, for use as the vehicle to deliver uh, the, the vaccine. And, and so this censorship, what does it do? It denied people information about early treatments. That meant more people relied on a one-size-fits-all answer, go get vaccinated. The vaccine was falsely represented as fully safe and effective. We were told that over and over again with government propaganda. It was not. We now know from the Pfizer information how many adverse events are associated with this. It's astronomical. We now know the effects of uh, the engineered DNA spike protein that it gives you in your body in many of these vaccines, and that that actually causes inflammation reactions throughout the body, just like the COVID virus itself. But unfortunately, you don't derive a fulsome immunity from the vaccine. It's related to the spike protein. It's not related to all the other virulent aspects of the COVID virus. Consequently, they lied to us over and over again. They lied to us telling us that if you get vaccinated, you won't get COVID. Well, that was a lie. They said, if you get vaccinated, you won't carry COVID. That was a lie. They said, if you get vaccinated, uh, you're not going to suffer from uh, a severe illness. Well, frankly, a whole bunch of people who are vaccinated died. Um, I don't know how severe you want to be, but death is pretty severe. And and then you've got uh, the whole lies about the masks. I mean, you got a nanoparticle that can pass through a single strand of thread, which is COVID. Uh, the COVID virus is a nanoparticle. And uh, I, uh, epidemiologist told me early on, he said, Jonathan, the, they're, they're, they're lying to us that the COVID virus is, he said, the analogy is if you have a mask on, it's analogous to a chain link fence. And the virus, he said, could be analogized to a mosquito. He said, will a chain link fence stop a mosquito from entering your yard? No. Will masks prevent you from having the virus go into your face or come out of the mask if you have it? No. So the all the evidence was against the mask. And what do they do? They told us 
wear one mask, wear two masks, wear three masks. Uh, absolute horrific thing. I guess if you wear enough masks, you'll suffocate and die, and then you aren't susceptible to pass the disease on or get it. But uh, this kind of insanity in favor of censorship, not allowing scientific criticism, not allowing doctors the freedom to practice medicine, uh, caused us to have a one-size-fits-all approach that was a bad approach. We lost over 1,100,000 Americans' lives because of this. We could have treated them better. We could have given them early treatments. We could have given them treatments tailored to their specific health conditions. And instead, we had this oppressive CDC uh, 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 program for treatment that caused many people to go onto ventilators, caused many people to ultimately die. And yet there's all this evidence from around the world that hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin were very effective early treatments. In fact, I think it's Brazil, if I'm not mistaken, that made it the primary treatment. Everybody in Brazil was able to get ivermectin. And they had far lower death rates per capita and far less severe disease. Well, in America, with our so-called, you know, big first world, ultra-modern medical system, we had one of the highest death rates of any country on the earth during COVID. And it has nothing to do with, in my view anyway, it has nothing to do with COVID itself or the regionality or any of that stuff. It has to do with the lack of early treatment. And then the treatments that were given were absolutely horrifyingly bad. They didn't work. They gave people uh, drugs that weren't effective, that caused additional disease. They put people on ventilators. And we could go on and on. And it's uh, that government, the government approach to COVID killed more people than it saved. I think that's at least certainly my opinion. I have another podcast called the Dearly Discarded Podcast, where all I do is talk about people, talk to people who were injured by the COVID vaccines. And there are in my opinion, and it's very difficult to count these numbers uh, because everything's so suppressed, but hundreds of thousands, probably millions. I mean, the group that I work with, React 19, has nearly 50,000 members uh, that are that are vaccine injured, most of which are in this country. And so the, the problems are massive. So then the next question I have for you, because we know that that's what happened. And now we're, you know, coming up on mid-September. It's quote unquote, cold and flu season, COVID season. There's this new variant that everybody wants to talk about. Uh, there are schools now that have already imposed some mask mandates here in this country. Uh, what What's your take on what's coming down the pipe and what can we do about it as citizens of this country? So this is a massive invasion of your individual rights. This is an attempt at government maintaining control over virtually every aspect of your life. If the government can compel you to wear a mask all the time or to receive a drug or a set of drugs over and over and over again, and you have virtually no choice, you're coerced into it by denying you access to a restaurant, denying you access to tra transportation, denying you access to a hospital, denying you access to all sorts of public facilities, schools, keeping your kids out of school. You know, the only way they'll go to school is if they're vaccinated. All right, this is a, a, a tyrannical regime. Let's be very clear. This is a, a deprivation of your, your rights. This takes away your rights over your own personal autonomy, your own liberty uh, and, and life. And so no one should ever be able to compel you to take any drug against your will. 
It's a fundamental right of yours to be free of that kind of coercion. And so what do we do? Well, we've got to, first of all, until I get in there, at least, we have to defy this. We cannot put the masks back on. We know we're too smart for that. We know they don't work. We know if you put the mask on, it's not going to make any difference. We also know that something like 80% of the population in the United States has already had COVID and has natural immunity. And that's going to be the best protection against any variant, including the most recent variants. And here's the thing. We can't let them force us to be vaccinated either. We can't do that. We cannot. We have to uh, uh, defend liberty and defeat tyranny by our own actions. Once I get in there, what I'm going to do is absolutely ban the mandates, ban the mask mandates, ban the, the vax mandates. Also, I'm going to ensure that those who were terminated from their offices as a result of the, the mandates get their positions back, get their payback, get their promotions back. How do we do this? I will use the, the federal government will be required to, in any instance where an institution has received federal funding, which is almost all police departments, all fire departments, all hospitals, to rehire those that were terminated because they wouldn't wear a mask or wouldn't be vaccinated as a condition of receiving additional federal funds. No more federal money unless you do it. And then in addition, they'll have to pay them their back pay and they will have to give them the promotions they were due because this was a violation of their rights. They should never have been terminated in the first instance. Same thing with the military. Get them all back in. We got a shortage in the military right now, a severe personnel manpower shortage. We would not have that if all those that they terminated and kicked out and forced into early retirement over this mask and vaccine mandates were not forced out. We have some of the most experienced people in the military, indispensable to our national security, who said, I'm not going to be vaccinated, and they kicked them out of the military. So this has been insane. We have to reverse all that. We have to go in the other direction, and we have to recognize as a principle that you as an individual have a right of personal autonomy against government controlling your body and forcing you to be vaccinated or masked or whatever. And we have to recognize that as a people, we will not put up with this. Could not agree more. Absolutely. We've got to put our feet down and uh, stand up for what is true. And, and yeah, we can't follow along with it anymore. So we don't have a whole lot of your time left. And there's a couple of things I want to make sure that we get to. Um, in Virginia, where you're running, you, you brought to my attention something I wasn't uh, aware of. Uh, there's a significant sex trafficking problem there. Uh, to tell us about that and, and what you hope to do about that. So uh, just this past week, two families of children and, their, and the children who were sex trafficked in the Fairfax County Public Schools hired me as their family attorney to try to come up with legislative solutions to this problem. I, I am well on my way to doing that in any event. But the fact of the matter is we have a massive sex trafficking problem in the United States. I think everybody who's seen The Sound of Freedom knows that. But this problem is in our schools. And the Fairfax County Public Schools in Northern Virginia have 181,000 students in them. And the sex trafficking is absolutely in every high school by their own admission, in many of the middle schools, and even in some of the elementary schools. And we're talking about fellow students who are in the gangs, who are in the 18th Street gangs and the MS-13 gangs and the Crips, who are all profiting from 
uh, sex trafficking in Northern Virginia and throughout the East Coast. And we're talking about the, the school system admitting over 500 separate instances of sex trafficking. They admitted to that in 2012. They've said it's gotten worse. They haven't said the numbers. The reality is they're, they're, this whole woke agenda in the schools is making it so much worse because they're prematurely sexualizing children. They're making them view sex as casual. They are making uh, children far more vulnerable uh, and they are enabling these gangs to better pick out and, and pull into the whole grooming process kids uh, who are in the school system. It's been a disaster. And so I'm, I'm drafting legislation that will fix that in Virginia, both on the state and the federal level, fix it on the federal level for the whole country. We've got to get tough. We have to root this out of the schools and we have to really do a number on it. And one of the big factors, of course, in all this is this mindless idiocy of open borders, which is causing us to have sex traffickers come across that border every single day. And we have no limitation on that, no effective limitation. The gangs, the criminal cartels that are terrorist organizations are determining America's immigration policy today under Alejandro Mayorkas at DHS and under this president. So we've got to stop that. And there are many ways of doing it. I've got a specific legislative proposal that solves the border problem. And that also is soon I'm going to be introducing to the Attorney General of Virginia uh, draft legislation on sex trafficking. And likewise, I'm going to give to Senator Rand Paul for introduction into the Senate, if he will, a federal bill that will get tough on sex trafficking. We need to, we need to make sure that sex traffickers who, who caused the death of the traffic victim or permanent bodily injury are subject to capital punishment because this is the most barbaric brutality you would not, you just could not imagine how horrific this sex trafficking trade is and how dehumanizing and ruinous it is to these, particularly these girls. It, it's just been, a, it's, when I heard the stories coming out of this, I can't tell you I was just emotionally distraught. And that's just hearing the stories. These girls went through this horrible, you know, inhumane and absolutely brutal set of experiences day after day after day. Their parents didn't even know it. It was going on in the schools and the school administrators are aware of it and they're not saying anything. They don't want to get involved. They don't want to uh, be made to account for their own personal inconvenience. They're willing to allow these kids to be sacrificed. That culture has to change, and I have specific solutions that will enable the attorney general to have direct representation in the schools and be able to bring cases directly against the traffickers rather than wait for these uh, Soros-backed DAs who do nothing uh, to pick it up. He'll be able to directly prosecute, and they'll be able, and the kids will be able to be able to communicate about their the horrors not to school administrators who do nothing, but to a specific officer dedicated in each school to ferret out, uh, investigate, prosecute, arrest, and then have prosecuted these, these sex traffickers and protect our kids. So any child that is potentially a victim of this needs to be taken out of the public schools right away and given alternatives of effective education. And that would include even private school uh, that, so that they're not, uh, uh, this doesn't happen. In the end, we need true school choice all over the United States. We need people to be able to take their kids out of school and have the, the money that is dedicated of their tax dollars 
for each student to go with them and go anywhere they want to receive the kind of education they want, because otherwise we have a, a, a failing public school system and one that I'm telling you is suffering from this massive blight of sex trafficking. If I had a daughter, I would not, and I do, and I, I would not put her in the Fairfax County public school system knowing what I know, and I am not. And I, I, I just, it, you are, there is no one, and boys and girls too, there's no one who is not at risk when you put them into that system because they are not ending sex trafficking. They could. The Fairfax County school system has something like a $2 billion budget and they have massive resources that they could expend to get rid of this. And they aren't. And they haven't. And they've known about it since 2007. Which makes them not only, uh, well, it makes them complicit, uh, in my view, uh, even if they aren't necessarily taking part in it. Although, who knows? Uh, you know you know better than I do what's happening there. And then, of course, we have this, you know, you mentioned Sound of Freedom. It's been this massive hit across the country because anybody with a conscience uh, is concerned about sex trafficking, whether you have children or not. If you've got a teenage daughter like I do, uh, it even hits a little bit closer to home. And uh, this <clears throat> the situation is dire, and yet what we hear from uh corporate media, what we hear from Hollywood, what we hear from even some uh, politicians is that this, it's overblown. This isn't what Sound of Freedom makes it out to be. Uh, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I frankly didn't know this was going to be part of the conversation, but of everything we've talked about, as much as I loathe the censorship that we've talked about and uh, what's happened through COVID, I can't think of anything more horrifying than what's happening in the sex trafficking trade. Yeah. So thank you so much for bringing that up. We do have just a couple of minutes left, and I, I want to... Uh, give you the opportunity to talk to the people who are not in Virginia, most of which, you know, my audience doesn't reside there. Uh, what can they do to help? And then also uh, mention that you are coming to Utah. Uh, and I'd like to talk a little bit about why you're coming and what you hope to achieve here. Well, I thank you for that. So people can help us enormously if they donate to our campaign through emord4va.com. And uh, I, I happen to be the only candidate uh, running for federal office, who is a complete health freedom advocate. Uh, most people have some reservations one way or another. I don't understand those reservations. I believe in freedom. I believe in individual freedom of choice. I believe in the founding fathers plan for this country, which would make us sovereign and the government our servants. And I view this whole issue to be really be one of a, a part and parcel of a bigger picture of an effort to take over this country and substitute for the constitutional republic that the founding fathers gave us a totalitarian regime where the government tells us what to do, where to work, uh, who we can associate with and so on. And they desperately want to do that. I work with those agencies every day. I know the direction they're heading. I've watched this. I wrote a book that's behind me right over there uh, called The Authoritarians, which documents the rise of authoritarianism, socialism, uh, in the United States, all the way back from the ideological origins of it in the antebellum South to the present. Um, but uh, I, I am driven to run because I want to ensure that our children, your children, my children, can live in a free country that abides by the Constitution and its limits on power and understand fundamentally 
that this is the greatest nation on earth. And the only way it will remain so is if it's true to the founding fathers principles that have served us so well. We have to have a free enterprise system that's vibrant. We have to have a government that is limited in its powers. We have to have rights that are protected by government. Uh, and we have to have the ability to seek redress of our grievances and not have this massive censorship. So there's a lot to be done and we need safe borders. We need to be able to understand that we're not gonna be victimized, that lives, liberties, and property of American citizens are gonna be protected with zeal as opposed to giving a huge incentive to people to come into this country illegally and ravage the whole nation uh, and to force us all to pay for it. Uh, you know, this has got to come to an end. So anyway, we're, I'm coming to Utah. I'm going to be there very soon on the 18th. Uh, there is going to be a telethon, a videothon, three hours long on a series of networks uh, that I'm going to participate in in Utah. And then we're going to have a fundraiser on the 19th, I believe. Um, and I think that's with you. And I'm really looking forward to meeting you and all of your supporters out there and followers. I think this is our, our mission. This is our, our choice. If you want to stand against masking, if you want to stand against vaccination, you want to stand for freedom, uh, you know, this is the opportunity. And, you know, I have no problem. If you really want to get the vaccine, that's your right too. But I'm telling you, you shouldn't be forced to do it. And I'm telling you, I want you to understand there are a lot of problems with the vaccine and you should be aware of them. If you want to take that risk, that's your choice. I'm not willing to do that. I, I'm hopeful that people will avoid it because I really believe that the disadvantages of it exceed any potential advantage. And I think the more you get into the, the details, you figure that out. But, you know, I'm not against people choosing it. I'm just against people being forced by the government to do it coerced and cajoled into it against their will. And of course, lied to about it in terms of informed consent. We got all kinds of information. Most of it wasn't true. And so people couldn't make a logical decision for their health. Uh, and they were coerced on top of that. And it was a, an absolute disaster. So certainly couldn't agree with you more. So we'll have information in the show description uh, about the event on the telethon on the 18th, as well as the meet and greet where you can ask questions of the candidate, Jonathan Emord, running for Senate in Virginia. That event will be at Vitality Nutrition in our seminar room, 107 South, 500 West in Bountiful. I would love for you to attend. I really do think this is going to have a lot of... Um, a lot of impact on you. Hopefully, if what you just heard on the show uh, resonates the way that it did with me, you'll want to meet this gentleman who's doing his best to fight for what we need in Washington. If you're as jaded as I am about politics and politicians, you'll know that uh, it was a, uh, a thing to bring on an actual politician running for office on Vitality Radio. But uh, there are still some very, very good people in this country who want to do the right thing, who are working in the political spectrum, and uh, we need to support those uh, strong and uh, uh, powerful individuals in their fight for our freedom. And in particular, of course, because it is our focus here on Vitality Radio, our health and medical freedom. Jonathan Emord for Virginia, but I would say for the USA, we need people like you 
back in Washington, actually fighting for our freedoms. And I appreciate what you're doing very, very much. Thanks for joining me on Vitality Radio. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. Thank you. Also, if you do come to Vitality uh, that day at 6 p.m., I think I forgot to mention it was at 6 p.m. So 6 p.m. until 7.30. It's a 90-minute thing. We're going to have some clean and organic snacks for you to munch on. We'll have a little swag bag provided by uh, Solaray, who is uh, one of the uh, great companies that we've worked with for years here in Utah that is on board with what uh, Jonathan is trying to accomplish back in Washington. They're providing some freebies for you as well. They're also hosting him at an event in their offices in Salt Lake on Tuesday morning uh, for some of their executives to try and see what they can do as a company to help out as well. So they're uh, very much on board with this, and I appreciate their uh, efforts uh, on the behalf of Jonathan and uh, so, <clears throat> anyway, you will get a free little swag bag with some stuff from Vitality, some stuff from Solaray. You'll also get a $20 gift card for Vitality Nutrition uh, that we'd love for you to use uh, at the store uh, that night if you'd like, or you can bring it back another time. But uh, we're going to give you 20 bucks just for coming to meet Jonathan Emord as well as the gift bag. So we'd love to have you there. Uh, he'll be talking about these things uh, as we discussed here on the show, but you can also ask questions and meet him in person and get a feel for him because you know how it is. You uh, hear somebody on the radio or a podcast, you watch him on TV, they seem pretty genuine, and then you meet him in person, you're like, ah, I don't know, this guy's a little shady. Um, I believe that that will not be the case uh, with Mr. Emord, but if you're like me, it's great to shake a hand and actually look someone in the eye. So we'd love to have you there at Vitality Nutrition at 6 p.m., Tuesday the 19th. It's free. We do have um, limited space, but I think we'll have enough for everybody that can attend. And if you have questions about that, you can call us at 801-292-6662. There will also be details in the show description on your podcast app. Okay, so now we have another thing to talk about because you know what? I've got a little extra time. Mr. Emord was uh, gracious enough to give me his time, uh, which he could only spare about a half an hour. And now I've got a little bit of extra time that I can talk about something that was incredibly shocking to me. Now, I've been you know, paying pretty close attention to health and nutrition for a long, long time. Uh, if you listen to my show, you know a little bit about my history. But sometimes stuff hits the news and just, I'm like, whoa, blown away. Holy cow, this is a thing? I had no idea. And that's what happened with this article. It was from Health Day, written by Sarah D. Collins, and uh, <clears throat> reprinted in the U.S. News and World Report. In fact, I was just looking for something, frankly, to uh, fill the rest of the show today that I could bring you that I thought would be interesting. And I saw this headline and I thought, oh my gosh, this is very interesting. So here it is. Early life removal of ovaries could bring faster aging. Whoa. Are you, are you telling me? Are you telling me that just cutting stuff out of the human body, you know, the God-given stuff that we received when our body was being formed in the womb of our mother, those things have a purpose, like we're supposed to have those things, and we should probably leave those things, if at all possible. Whoa, it's incredible what, what modern medicine and uh, technology and studies and health journals are able to tell us. And if you can't tell, 
I say all of that in jest. But let's read through the article and just see what we've learned here as of September 14th from Health Day News. Premenopausal women who have surgery to remove their ovaries, which is called an ophorectomy, and fallopian tubes may face chronic medical conditions and a decline in physical functioning, according to the new research. The study is important because it emphasizes information that we already know, and that is that premenopausal, sorry, bilateral ophorectomy is not good for women's health. Okay, so that's women who have both ovaries removed prior to menopause. And it's associated with increased odds of a number of chronic diseases, according to Dr. Stephanie Fabian, director of the women's health um, of women's health at Mayo Clinic, which led the study. Now, to her credit, she says this didn't tell us anything we didn't already know. Of course, we should have our ovaries, but why is it headline news? Well, there's a reason for that, and I'll continue to read from the article. Ovaries may be removed for a number of reasons, including cysts and endometriosis, a condition caused by uterine cells growing in other parts of the body. Women who test positive for a certain BRCA gene mutation, which raises cancer risk, may choose to have them removed to prevent ovarian cancer as well. The new findings may help inform their decision, experts say. So in other words, this is news because there are women making the decision to have their ovaries removed. And of course, their doctors are you know, helping them, I guess, make that decision. Or I don't know if they're encouraging it necessarily or uh, how that goes exactly. I've never been in any of those medical offices when that decision was made. But basically, between the physician and the patient, they're making this decision and it's a big decision because we are removing what would be considered non-vital things from the human body. Like a woman can live without her ovaries, but still I would consider them vitally important, if not totally vital, I guess. For the study, researchers led by uh, Michelle Mielke of Wake Forest University School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, followed 274 women who had had this procedure done. Women who had uh, the uh, uh, removal of their ovaries and fallopian tubes from 46 to 49 years of age had a greater risk of arthritis and obstructive sleep apnea, the study found. There's a couple of things that are no fun. Women who had the procedure before the age of 46 had increased risk of arthritis, asthma, obstructive sleep apnea, and broken bones. Now, broken bones are not a small thing, particularly in women, because in usual care, the reported one-year mortality after sustaining a hip fracture has been estimated to be somewhere between about 15 and 60%. Now, think about that. Okay, so we have estimates of 15 to 60 percent. But even if we take the low end and it's 15 percent, that means 15 percent of women who break their hip within one year are dead in this country. That's not a small thing. So we have an increased risk of arthritis, asthma, obstructive sleep apnea and broken bones. And also the youngest group women under 46, also went a shorter distance on a six-mile walk. In other words, their fitness was actually um, 
diminished, essentially, their uh, physical capability of walking a longer distance. And it's very important, according to researchers, that they are seeing more adverse outcomes in terms of the six-minute walk test because that is a predictor of several other adverse outcomes in the future, including premature death and physical function, said Dr. Joanne Manson, a hospital chief at Brigham and Women's Hospital and a professor at Harvard Medical School who reviewed the findings. She led a previously groundbreaking study that also found higher rates of coronary heart disease and premature death among nurses who had had this procedure before the age of 50. If you're under the age of 45, they showed in a previous paper from the Mayo Clinic that if you have women taking out their ovaries under the age of 45 and they did not get estrogen, that they had about a threefold increased risk of development of dementia later in life, three times as likely to get dementia, which is on the rise in this country as well. So none of this sounds particularly good, right? Everything from arthritis to asthma to hip fracture to dementia to uh, increased mortality for all causes. This is all not so hot. So let's talk a little bit about the ovaries. The ovaries make most of a a woman's, sorry, estrogen, which is a key for regulating the menstrual cycle and affects the following things. And I will say this isn't a long enough list, but we'll go with the list that they uh, presented in the article. The urinary tract, the heart and blood vessels, bones, breasts, skin, hair, mucous membranes, pelvic muscles, and brain function, as well as mental health, emotional mental health issues like anxiety, depression. All of those are impacted by estrogen. Basically, the whole series of papers that have been done along these lines is to really show that estrogen is actually important for people, (laughs) Dr. Minkin said. That's really what it boils down to. Shocking again, right? For women who are thinking about having their ovaries removed, Minkin summed up the current medical thinking. Most people would advocate leaving the ovaries in until at least the age of 60 or 65. Don't take them out, even if somebody who's quote, or or sorry, even in somebody who's quote, unquote, postmenopausal. Leave them in there, she said. When we have women who are clearly under the age of 50, what are we doing? For these young women, these young women, sorry, taking out ovaries is not necessarily the greatest thing in the world for their other medical health. Okay, so that's basically the end of the article. I cut out a couple of paragraphs that I didn't think were particularly useful, but that's most of the article there. And and what have we learned from that? And why am I so shocked? And of course, again, my shock was complete sarcasm. But like I said at the beginning. It's as if these things are there for a reason. Our organs and glands are there for a reason. As if God knew what he was doing when he created our bodies and placed those things there. And maybe this could even extend to the tonsils or the adenoids or gallbladders. Is that possible? So here's my take on this. If a woman is struggling with things that most ovaries are removed for, such as endometriosis or cysts, or even BRCA, which isn't a struggle, it's just a thing, right, where they have a mutation of that gene that increases the risk of feminine cancers, it still is an extreme measure to start removing healthy body 
parts. Now, this has been done not just with ovaries, but also with breasts in the case of double mastectomies. The most famous person to have done this, well, there's a couple of famous people, but the first one that was famous to do it that I was aware of anyway was Angelina Jolie, who decided to have a double mastectomy because she had the BRCA mutation. And then Christina Applegate did that as well. And now she doesn't have breast cancer, but she has multiple sclerosis, which is an interesting thing because that's a nervous system and autoimmune disorder, both of which can be brought on by severe stress. Well, what type of stress might someone like that be going through? Well, one of the stresses would be, oh my gosh, I've got this mutation. I have a higher risk of this disease. I've known women who have had this disease. I'm terrified. What can I do? Well, let's cut things off or cut things out. It's very, very extreme. And yet, in many cases, it's almost acted like it's routine. Now, double mastectomies for healthy breasts are not routine. Um, ophorectomies are of healthy ovaries are not routine. But gallbladder removal is kind of routine. Tonsillectomies, very routine. These things happen all the time. And I have a feeling that uh, some of you might agree with what I'm about to, stay and, or about to say, and that is that we have a system, a medical system in this country, where in many cases it's as if we are trying to play God with the human body. I don't think we know enough to just pull things out that are unnecessary. It would be like me going to my car and popping the hood and pulling something out, thinking, well, my car will probably run fine without it. I don't even know why it's there anyway. I'm not a mechanic, but even if I was, <laughs> I wouldn't just pull stuff out of an engine because it wasn't necessary. It's probably there for a reason. In the human body, though, which is infinitely more complex than an automobile engine, we have a real problem when we just start pulling stuff out. And I'm not a doctor either, but the doctor didn't design the body. The doctor is trying to hopefully heal the body. But in this case, we're not talking about healing because removing an ovary or both ovaries doesn't heal endometriosis. It does stop it from taking place anymore, but is the cause of endometriosis actually bad ovaries? No, it isn't at all. What is the cause of endometriosis? Well, there's a lot of excellent research and a tremendous amount of evidence that the actual issue with endometriosis has everything to do with environmental things and dietary things and stress things, all of which can be adjusted, manipulated, changed without cutting anything out of the human body. There are supplements that we absolutely know can work on endometriosis, such as systemic enzymes, things that help to balance hormones, things that help to detoxify the endocrine system so that the body isn't receiving all of these mixed signals when it's trying to produce the various hormones that it needs to produce for optimal function. And what about ovarian cysts? Is it the ovary that's the culprit? What about breast cancer? Is it the breast that's the culprit? Or ovarian cancer? 
or cervical cancer, or uterine cancer, or prostate cancer for that matter. It doesn't really matter the cancer. Where the cancer is, isn't because that particular part of the body is malfunctioning. It is because that particular part of the body is susceptible, I will say. In the case of BRCA, and of course, again, I'm not a genetic expert. I'm also not a medical expert. And I will admit right now, I don't know a whole lot about that particular topic. But if we just think about it logically, in the case of BRCA mutation, we have a mutation that is, I guess you could say, irregular because it's a mutation that raises the risk, increases the risk. But we know that genes must express themselves in order for anything to happen at all. So why would it be logical to you? And ask yourself this question, because I asked myself this question. Why would it be logical for you to cut out your prostate if there was no prostate cancer or your ovary if there was no ovarian cancer or your breast if there was no breast cancer? Why would that be logical? If you just think about it just in really, really simple terms. Now, if BRCA increased your breast cancer risk by 100% or even 90%, then, you know, maybe, maybe I could see that that could make sense unless there were things that you could bring your risk, you could do to bring your risk down, which there are many, many, many things that can bring your risk down. So rather than removing the turf upon which the cancer can grow, why don't we remove the things that make the cancer happen in the first place? The inputs, the pollutants that we're not getting out of our body because our drainage pathways are clogged up, the toxins that we're eating in our diet that we know increase cancer risk because we know that those things increase cancer risk. And yet we say, well, my BRCA increases cancer risk, can't get rid of that, so I'll get rid of the breasts or the ovaries instead. But what about the junk food, the seed oils? Uh, what about glyphosate, which we know increases cancer risk? What about eating organic to prevent cancer in that way? What about taking things that we know reduce cancer risk, such as selenium? You know, Jonathan Emord, who I just interviewed, he actually championed that fight against the FDA so that we could get selenium listed as an anti-cancer nutrient, a mineral that our bodies require, that is completely natural, that is necessary for optimal health, that also happens to fight, guess what? Feminine cancers as well as prostate cancer. And we know that it's been clinically proven over and over again that your risk is reduced dramatically. In fact, some of the studies show that it might be reduced as much as 50%, which means that selenium can reduce your risk by 50%, where BRCA, depending on the level of mutation, might increase your risk by 40%. Interestingly enough, selenium costs about $4 a month to use, a really good one, and you don't have to remove anything. Green tea, grapeseed extract, turmeric, so many things. The list is almost endless of things that you could potentially do to help prevent cancer. Also, of course, detoxification. These are all things that to me seem so much more logical. Sure, maybe be a little more vigilant. Maybe get checked out a little bit more if 
the way you're getting checked is something that won't hurt you because we know that radiation that comes from a mammogram, for instance, increases the risk of cancer. But there are ways to check the breast tissue for cancer that do not, such as thermography or possibly even ultrasound, depending on the situation. What I'm trying to get at here, I think, is, is, is really pretty simple. Our body is a machine made up of many, many, many different moving parts, all of which are connected. Yes, you can live without a gallbladder. Yes, you can live without your ovaries. You can absolutely live without your breasts, and you can live without your tonsils. These are all things you can live without. But can you live optimally without them? If the answer is no, and I would say it is a very, very firm no, then what might we do short of removal to protect ourselves from these things, which to me also feels so much more empowering because now I can say I'm taking an active role in this fight against the thing that might, might take me down. And in taking that active role, I am preventing the disease from taking root as opposed to removing the turf that it might eventually take root on. And short of cancer, endometriosis, that's no laughing matter. Ovarian cysts, they aren't either. But the endometriosis, you talk to any woman who's dealt with that, it can be an absolute hell, for sure. But why is the endometriosis happening and what can we do to solve it? Because it can be solved and it gets solved all the time, short of surgery, short of removal, short of pharmaceuticals. And the same can be said about cysts. We know there are things that are natural, that can prevent cysts from happening, that can prevent endometriosis, and that can reverse them. This is why we must do our homework and to some degree learn to be our own doctor using doctors when it is prudent, but educating ourselves so that we know what to do when the time comes, if it comes, and better yet, we know what to do to prevent the need for that ever happening in the first place. It's why I do Vitality Radio, and it's why guys like Jonathan E. Mort are running for Senate, so that this information can be readily available to you, so that you can get educated on it in a real and substantial way, so that you can take better care of your health and optimize your vitality. All right, I've run up against the clock here. I hope that was helpful. If you can make it, on September 19th, that's this coming Tuesday at 6 o'clock at Vitality Nutrition in Bountiful, 107 South, 500 West. We would love to have you. We'll give you a $20 gift card. Uh, I'll be there. My buddy Robert Scott Bell will be there. And we'll be happy to give you a swag bag and a gift card. You can meet Jonathan. I will warn you in advance that if we get a lot of people there, which I'm hoping we will, there might be some people that will need to stand. I've got as many chairs as I can get uh, in there, but uh, I, let's fill this place up. It's a worthy event. We'll have a really good time, and we'll reward you a little bit for coming as well. Love to have you there. The 19th, 6 o'clock, all those details are in the show 
description in your podcast app. If you're hearing this on radio and you want to check out the podcast, it's Vitality Radio Podcast on all the major podcast apps. Look for it there. If you have questions, call us at Vitality Nutrition 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. Or jump online, VitalityNutrition.com. I'm Jared St. Clair, and this has been Vitality Radio. been listening to the vitality radio podcast enjoy your week in the meantime jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it vitality radio is researched and written by jared st Clair. our awesome music is by brian bob young support vitality radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on apple podcasts youtube or your favorite podcast source Don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you.